Uh, it's good to be back with you again. Um, I should just start by saying, he is risen. He is risen good. Hey, here's the thing. Pro tip. You can actually say that every single Sunday, all year long. You actually say it every day. You know why? Because it's true. So that's good. Uh, I also bring you greetings and blessings uh, from the Church of Jesus Christ in Iowa City, where I was two weeks ago preaching a Palm Sunday service at a church that I planted 13 years ago, who, through God's mercy and grace towards me, still exists and is thriving. And they have their own building right across from the Iowa Writers Workshop in the heart of Iowa City. And it was so good to be there. But it's good to be back with my home congregation. So let's do this. Let's stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Peter. I know we don't normally stand, but I like standing. And today I'm in charge. So uh, hear, hear the, the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls uh, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have preserved it. And thank you that you brought Peter to a place where he could write this for the church in the first century and for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so as we learned just a moment ago from our uh, children's lesson, kind of our whole lives are about obedience, right? From just like basically the very earliest stages of our infancy until we die, there are rules, there are chores, there are tasks that we have to accomplish. And parents, you know this very well. Uh, my daughter, who uh, now, or my grandson, just turned one. And about four months ago, she discovered that the root of disobedience actually starts for no apparent reason in the high chair. 
when you say to your child, don't throw your food on the floor, and the child just looks at you and picks up the food and drops it. And she texts you. She's like, what's up with that? We're like, have fun. <laughs> have fun. We don't know what that's about. We never experienced that with you constantly. Right? And see, from the earliest stages, when we tell our children to do simple things, we find this law at work that even though we maybe want to do it, there's this part of us that says, I don't want to keep my food on my plate. I want to drop it on the floor. I don't want to keep my clothes clean. I want them to be dirty. I don't want to come home at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. I want to come home at midnight. I don't want to turn in my assignment on time. I want to turn it in late. I don't want to drive 55. I just can't drive 55. I could drive, see what I did there? I could drive 70, 75 miles an hour, and I could justify it by saying, that's what everybody else is doing. To which my mother, Mom Fuchsius, would always say, well, if everybody was going to jump off a bridge, would you do it too? And I'd be like, well, I don't know. Is it fun? You know? <laughs> like, there's this qualifier, like, if the bridge is like, if it's only like 10 feet drop, then maybe I would do it. I don't know. Right? But this, this war within us is constant. And it's easy to see in the little things. And maybe we even have statements to go along with them. Statements like this. Well, and parents, you've heard this one before. Well, when I'm in charge, I'm not going to make my kids do that thing. You're like, okay, have fun with that in your messy house. Enjoy that. Or, better yet, this one. Hey, you're not the boss of me. Right? See, you're laughing because you, you've all heard this. Right? You're not the boss of me. This, this trouble, this angst that we have with obedience is deep, deep-seated. And it goes all the way back to the garden. Right? It goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve said, you know what? I don't think you're being honest with me. I think that there's a better way for me. I don't believe what you're telling me is the way for me to flourish and to thrive. I believe the serpent don't believe you. I'm not going to obey your rules. I'm going to obey these rules because they seem better for me. And here's the problem with disobedience. Disobedience actually gets in the way of our joy and our flourishing. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to examine obedience. Because what I think maybe will help, I don't know, but what I think maybe will help is a different understanding or maybe a better understanding of obedience, right? And so what I want to do is just, if you have your, how many people, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you should bring your Bibles. I like a good, you know, a good Bible because you can look at it and see what the Word says. You don't have to believe me. But if you look at 1 Peter, verses 13 through 25, there are in this section a series of imperatives. Imperatives are directives or things that should be obeyed. And here's what Peter says to them. I'm only going to read you the imperatives. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy in all your conduct. All, key word there, all your conduct. 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile and love one another earnestly with a whole heart. In just, you know, 12 verses, Peter has given them rules, guides to obey that seem great and fantastic but nearly impossible to achieve. So how, how, do we, how do we do this? How can we think about obedience? I want to give us four ways to think about obedience this morning. The first one is the foundation of obedience. Then the practice of obedience. Then the motivation for our obedience. And finally, the fruit of our obedience. So first let's talk about the foundation of obedience. And, and Peter starts right off with it. He says... Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the foundation. Set your hope fully. 100% of your hope should be set fully on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation that everything in our lives should be built upon. And Peter even tells us why. He starts off by saying, therefore, and any of us who've ever done an elementary Bible study know that when we see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And Peter has already told us. He tells us earlier, and he says, listen, here's the thing. The hope that you have is a living hope It is not like other people's hope. This hope is living. It is Jesus Christ. And it is kept for you, imperishable, undefiled, forever. The hope that he's asking them to make the foundation of all of their lives is something that is kept for them forever. And it is a living hope. That sounds like an amazing place for a foundation and he tells them how to do it he says prepare your minds for action and so just think about this this is all about action right he's not saying just be lazy he's saying actually intentionally prepare your minds for action for applying these truths And then he says, being sober-minded. What does that mean? Being sober-minded. So we have rules. One of the rules that we have in Virginia and all over the country is that the blood alcohol level is 0.08. It used to be 1 or 0.1, but now it's 0.08% of your blood alcohol, of your blood level cannot contain alcohol. Any more than that? And they know that your reaction times slow down. And that your judgment is off. And I know this is true, because when I went to college, I changed my major like, I don't know, five or six different times. I finally landed on binge drinking. And turns out, I excelled at that. I had kind of found the thing in life that I was fantastic at. And I was so good at it, that the registrar of the University of Iowa wrote me a letter, a personal letter, in my second semester, congratulating me for fulfilling all the requirements of that degree and telling me that I was basically de-enrolled from the university. 
yeah, that happened. Because my judgment was impaired, I just, I just, that's where that led. And so when you do a roadside test, they test you, you know, saying the alphabet backwards and, and balancing. There's physical proof, physical evidence that they're looking for. Things that you can't even, like you can practice the, you know, and alcoholics do this all the time. They're like, I'm going to practice the, the, uh, the alphabet backwards. So if I ever get pulled over, I'll be able to pull it off just off muscle memory. But they do this thing where they say, just watch my finger. And it'll go back and forth. And what they can see is that your eyes ratchet. They don't follow closely. They'll like ratchet across. And this is because the alcohol in your bloodstream has actually impacted the ability for your eyes to track properly. And you can't hide that. And so what Peter's saying is, listen, this foundation of obedience is so important. And it's based on something that's already been done for you. But it's important that you don't see this foundation as just nothing, but as it requires work, it requires um, effort, it requires application, and it requires being sober-minded so that you're not impaired, so that you're ready, so that you know what to do. And so the question I maybe will ask this morning, very delicately, is which category do you fall in? Are you a person who's, you know, you've taken a lot of information in, but you really haven't done anything with it? Your mind's not really prepared for action. You're just, you know, kind of coasting through. Or maybe the issue you're facing this morning is that your judgment is impaired. And maybe it's not by alcohol. Maybe it's by envy, greed, how well your children are doing, how well you're doing, all kinds of things. And what Peter says is, listen, I need you to set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ because that foundation is a living hope that is imperishable, cannot be defiled, and is kept for you. And in order to do that, I need you to prepare your minds for action and to be sober-minded. Because this, this foundation, the nature of this foundation, has to be firm enough to sustain the weight of your lives. And when we bought our house, there was, uh, in our front yard, it's still there, and if you come over, you'll see this, there's a bunch of stones on our front path. And the foundation of those stones was not good, and here's how I found out. I drove over them with my John Deere 240 lawn tractor, and I cracked like 80% of them. And the reason that they cracked is whoever put them down, and I'm not naming names, my former owner, uh, just basically dug out some dirt and put the stones back down. So there's no sand, there's no gravel, there's no nothing, the foundation's horrible, and they just cracked under the sheer weight of life. And this is what Peter is saying. Make sure that your foundation, the foundation for obedience, must be secure. It must be on this hope that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this hope that is to be ours, is going, we're going to see that this becomes actually the fuel. But first I want us to see the practice of obedience. So the foundation of obedience leads to the practice of obedience. And here's what he says in verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed anymore to the passions of your former ignorance. Here's what I love about this passage right here. 
he doesn't say as subjects, as people who are ruled. He says as children. So this entire passage has to be understood through the lens of love. That, we're in a, that we are family members. That this is our father calling us obedient children. And he's saying, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Which is a nice way of saying, don't be stupid. Don't be constantly consumed by the sin that you're in. Because it is just ignorance and it leads to destruction. Don't be conformed anymore by the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, here's the big ask, be holy as I am holy. Ooh, okay. You want me to be holy as, 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 as the Father's holy? Okay, that's, uh, that seems impossible. First you told me not to be conformed anymore to the passions of my former ignorance, which seemed possibly doable. But then you said that what I had to do instead was to be holy as you're holy, which seems absolutely, positively impossible, and you are correct. But it is still what it means to obey. And in order to figure this out, we have to ask ourselves a series of questions, right? So how will I know what is good? How do I know what it means to be holy? How do I know what is right? How do I know what flourishing, how do I know what the good life looks like? And to answer that question, there is one book in the Bible that we can go to that always has the best answers. Leviticus. (laughs) Who doesn't love themselves some good old Leviticus? And here's how you know that this is where Peter wants to take us. Because he says... Be, as it is written, be holy as I am holy. And where does that come from? Leviticus. Here's what it says in Leviticus. It says, Keep my Sabbaths. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's Leviticus 19.2. In Leviticus 20, verses 26 and 27, it says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from all the peoples that you might be mine. So, Leviticus is the place that we can go. And what does Leviticus tell us that holiness looks like? Here's what it says You shall revere your mother and father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. You shall not turn to idols of any kind of metal. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. What does that sound like? It's the Ten Commandments. It's pretty plain and simple. Just keep the Ten Commandments. But here's what else it says. It also says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its, its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. This becomes extremely important to Ruth and Naomi, who are only able to survive because Boaz obeyed the law. Because they had no land to go back to and would have starved to death if Boaz hadn't been keeping the law. It says, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. 
It says you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. And the wages of your hired servant, because he's poor and he needs the money, should not remain with you until the morning. You have to pay him right away. You can't say, oh, I'm sorry, we've got trouble with the accountant. I don't know, and we'll get that to you. But, you know, you'll just have to wait, and eventually we'll pay you. No, you can't do that. You can't do it because you've invested in non-fungible tokens or Bitcoin. Right? This person needs the money, and so you have to pay them right away. Do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall not go around as a slanderer. Listen to this one. This is how specific it had to be. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Seriously? Who does that? There's a reason it's in here. Because kids, people thought it was funny. Hey, let's put a stumbling block in front of the blind guy. No, you can't do that. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the sojourner who sojourns with you as a native. You shall do no wrong in judgments of length or weight or quantity. And in the first century, they didn't have like universal weights and measures. What you had to do is you had to trust that when you went to, shall we say, Jerusalem, that the weights and measures, when they said, oh yeah, this is an epoch of grain, it was really that, that they hadn't switched them out before you got there and go, oh, it's a sojourner. Sure, that's an epop. Sure it is. What he's saying is that the practice of obedience isn't just the Ten Commandments. It's all of our lives. It's everything. It is our academic lives, our vocational lives, our relational lives, our political lives, our sexual lives, and our financial lives all of this, Scripture speaks to all of this being about the practice of our obedience. And here's the thing. As much as culture will celebrate some of this, being nice to the poor, helping them out, paying people right away, that's celebrated by our culture. And we like that. But there's other aspects of obedience that are not going to be celebrated by our culture. Like our sexual ethic. Statistics, studies now show that most people in this country think we're the problem with these regressive sexual ethics and, and ways of, of acting. And so some of it will be revered and some of it will not be revered. And so that, that revering can't be the motivation. Which brings me to the motivation for our obedience. Look at verse 17. He says, and you shall call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So the motivation for obedience is one, it is not fear of penalty. And it's not getting legalistic righteousness. And maybe for a moment we'll look at that and we'll go, oh man, it's so good because we don't, totally don't struggle with that today. That was a Bible time thing. I am never motivated to obey by fear of punishment or by feeling like I have achieved something awesome. Right? This 
totally doesn't apply to us at all, except it totally does. Because from a young age, parents, listen up, from a young age, we teach our children that obedience is frequently about avoiding punishment and getting our acceptance. And then we wonder, why do our children have trouble with obedience? It is because at the heart of some of our parenting is this completely anti-gospel approach. You obey because I told you so, fear of punishment, and then you get my affirmation. And that's just not grounded in in the gospel. I mean, granted, those things are, in fact, necessary components, right? It's necessary that you obey. There is going to be penalties for disobedience and blessings for obedience. That's, that's natural. But when we don't keep the gospel involved, what we find is that this is not enough to kind of fuel this natural obedience that Peter is calling for. And what he says is, you need to do this out of reverent awe. Your scriptures maybe say fear, but I would say that the word fear here is kind of unhelpful. What we should understand it is reverent awe. Worship. That worship is the motivation for our obedience. A motivation that is fueled by a sense of value. Here's what he says. He says, listen, you are not ransomed by silver or gold, you were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, and the story that you are telling yourselves, the narrative that's going on in your head is, I am not valuable. I am not loved. I am unlovable. If you knew what had happened to me, you would understand that the story that I'm telling myself is absolutely true. I am not valuable. I do not measure up. I am dirty. I am not worth your time. I am not worth their time. I am not worth their love. And here's what he says. Hey, listen, you were not ransomed by silver or gold, but you were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So you are unbelievably valuable. God gave his only son for you. So that when you say, I am not valuable, I cannot be loved, the response can be, oh, yes, you are. The father gave the most precious thing in the world for you. And so our motivation for obedience, not just fueled by value, but fueled by a sense of purpose. Right? It's not that this, oh, I I keep working, I keep doing these things, and where's the payoff? When when do I get what's coming to me? Look at all the good things I've done. Where's my stuff? No, it's not that. Because that's, you know, there, there are people who work in government their entire lives and accomplish very little. I deal with this every day administering in Washington, D.C. People are like, yeah, you know what? As soon as this administration is over, the new guys are going to come in. They're going to, they're going to, intentionally tear down everything I just worked for for four years. (laughs) Why even bother? 
That's what the people of the first century were asking themselves. Look, you know how long we've been obeying? A long time. Look what it's got us. We're being ruled by Rome. Obedience has gotten us nowhere. Why even bother? Here's the thing. That, that sense of futility, that sense of I just can't keep going, is real when, when our hope, when our motivation for obedience isn't what it's supposed to be. And that is that we are motivated by the fact that we are valuable and we've been given a purpose. Our purpose is not, as I've said before, to build back better. It's not our job. Our job is not to make America great again. Not our job. Here's what our job is. To participate in God's mission of making all things new. Because that's what he's doing. And even if you do nothing or oppose it completely, guess what? It still happens. So the weight, the burden is off that you get to participate in a purpose that's guaranteed to happen. And here's how you know, again, that this is what he's trying to drive at. Think of Leviticus. What have the people done to merit getting saved? They got saved out of Egypt where they were slaves, making bricks without straw. Their lives were futility. What did they do that got them rescued? What did they do that merited it? Nothing. God just went and got them. Because he promised, and he's the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, I love you and I'm going to come get you, and I'm going to save you, and you're my people, and now I'm going to tell you what worshiping me looks like. The book of Leviticus is a book about worship. It's God saying, this is how I want to be worshipped. I want to be worshipped by your obedience. You worship me when you don't lie. You worship me when you don't steal. You worship me when you pay the workers what, they're, what they deserve when they deserve it. You worship me when you take care of the poor. This is worship. The book of Leviticus is not a book of rules. It's a book of worship. This motivation sustains us through our time of exile. And finally, the fruit of obedience in verses 22 through 25. It says, Having purified your soul by obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. The fruit of obedience is love. Is loving one another. That the fruit of obedience is loving one another. And when it says because we have purified our hearts, this doesn't mean that like we have made ourselves righteous. It means that kind of like cognitive behavior therapy, we've learned to think the right things and do the right things by practicing them, by doing them. And the more we are in Scripture and the more we are obeying, the easier and easier this gets because we're forming new pathways in our mind that make it easier to do this. And because we've been born again. Right? We have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his marvelous light, not because of what we've done, but because of what we have done, and that is what makes love possible. This passage that comes out of Isaiah is a passage that, again, remember, the whole book of Isaiah is about one thing. You are naughty, you're going into exile, and I'm going to come and get you back afterwards. How do we know? Because I promised you that I'm going to do it. That God's promises sustain us. And so we're set free. 
And Leviticus. You know what other great verse is right in the middle of Leviticus? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the middle of Leviticus. In the middle of Leviticus 19, in between these two bookends of obedience, is love your neighbor as yourself. The fruit of obedience that God was trying to get out of his people in the book of Leviticus is love. And the fruit that God is trying to get out of us in obedience is loving one another. Love that is free from greed, from malice, from jealousy, from competition, from judgmentalism. And that is needed everywhere. So, here's the paradox of obedience. The paradox of obedience is that we get the blessings and the promises that are made to us. The promise of the hope to be revealed to us at the end of time is ours not because we obey, but because someone else has obeyed. That's the paradox of obedience. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Peter and all that you have done through him for us in helping us to understand obedience and what it can lead to. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who guarantees us the blessings that are promised to us based on his work and not ours. In Christ's name, amen.